0: Welcome to Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. I'm your host, Shannon Peel, and today I talk with Jason Bernard about brand SERPs and why they're so important and why you need to ensure that your brand SERP is saying what you want it to say when people are Googling your brand name. So listener, if you want to make sure that you are getting the most out of Google and the people who are asking questions on Google and searching for your brand, keep listening. Jason, thank you so much for joining me here today on Brand Appeal, and I got one question for you. What do you want to be known for?
1: Right now, I want to be known for being the Brand SERP guy, for mastering on Google what appears when your audience Googles, or in fact on Bing, when they search your brand name or your personal name. Right now, that's my aim.
0: For my listeners that don't understand what a SERP is, can you explain how this, what this magical SERP is and how it works?
1: That's a very good point. I always forget that people don't know what SERP means. It's an acronym, S-E-R-P, for Search Engine Results Page. And there's a whole industry of people in SEO who will help you to get to the top of the rankings for something like buy red shoes. hmm And everybody's obsessed by that, these kind of, we're going to sell straight away, it's magic, it's the magic bullet, the magic solution to my business problems. And what most people forget is that a lot of your marketing online is communicating with people through multiple steps. And at some point, they will search your brand name. And that is the moment when you're likely to be able to convince them to do business with you. And that is where your brand SERP, your the search engine results page for your brand name becomes so important. It's your Google business card. Mm-hmm. And if it looks great, Google is kind of recommending you.
0: And that's important because Google gives you credibility and brings exactly. you traffic. Now, I want to get back to that idea of the SEO world wanting to sell red shoes, because a lot (laughs) of times people think, oh, we got to sell something right away. And most businesses aren't product-based. I'm going to sell brand storytelling. Well, that's not something that someone's going to buy right away. That's something that... People need to understand that they have a need for, they need to know what it is, they need to understand that I'm an expert at it. And all of this stuff can happen through SEO, but SERP helps people to find the answers to the questions they're thinking about. 100%,
1: and that's the point. The search engine results page, both Google and Bing say the same thing. The aim of the search engine results page is to get their user to the solution to the problem that they have as quickly and efficiently as possible. When you search in Google or in Bing, you're expressing a problem to which you're looking for a solution or a question for which you're looking for an answer. And their entire algorithm, their entire business model is based on the idea of getting you to that solution or getting you that answer as efficiently as possible. So what they're doing is looking through the most efficient and best solution, and it's up to you to make sure that Google understands that you are that solution. Now, that's in the case, and you're right, is that people look at this kind of last moment thing, it's red shoes by red shoes, that's where I need to be. But a lot of businesses, as you rightly point out, are actually trying to educate people, to bring them down the funnel to something that they didn't necessarily know they needed. Mm -hmm. And you and I are both in that situation. So what we end up with is these multiple touch points as we educate people and we bring them down the funnel. And that ends in the brand search. There aren't any keywords, there aren't any things that people actively search for that we can aim at. So we we're necessarily in this kind of marketing, more traditional marketing, is educating, helping people towards the understanding of this need that they have that they didn't know they have. And that, as I said, necessarily ends in a brand search. And when they do that brand search, what Google shows them, your Google business card, is phenomenally important. Mm-hmm. Their perception of your brand, they've almost made the decision. And that can tilt it, negative or positive. You
0: no, know, a lot of the things that you're talking about is how people search what are the questions they're asking Google? Can we ensure that when people are asking questions about problems that we help them solve, but we're not really, like we're so busy talking about ourselves and the solution. Right. Do people actually Google the solution or do they Google the problem?
1: Absolutely brilliant. They. They Google the problem. We we are all the stars of our own films and we tend to look at things from our own perspective. And from there, we're looking at saying, well, I need to look at what my users or my audience's problem is. Mm -hmm. And I need to make sure that I clearly have the solution to that problem. And if I have the solution to this specific problem they have, in terms of Google, my question is, how do I explain to Google that I have this solution to this specific problem so that when it understands that the user is looking for my solution, they will find my solution? And secondly, how do I convince Google that mine is the best solution? Hmm. And when you look at it that way, you're actually saying, all I'm doing is educating a machine. And this machine is a child. It's a child who wants to understand, who wants to learn and it's up to us to educate it who you are what you do who your audience is and then what solutions we have in which circumstances which are going to be truly useful to the user and why we are the better solution than our competition
0: wow that sounds complicated because there's a lot of moving parts in that
1: yeah it it is kind of complicated and at the same time it isn't because your landing pages, the pages on your website, website, sorry, should provide the solution. So it's not a question of changing a strategy. It's a question of explaining it better to Google. Search. And that simply means packaging it.
0: How can we make sure that we get seen when they're searching for the problem? How can we make sure that it's our content that they see?
1: Right. And that's the, the, the crux is packaging for Google. I mean, Google is a consumer. It's a user like everybody else. So it's looking at your page and it's saying, what's in here? What's the solution? What am I looking at? And the difference between a human being and Google is simply the way Google consumes content. So what you need to do is make sure that you're packaging the content you've made for your users in a way that Google can e- easily digest, understand, and then use in order to propose it or suggest it as a solution when it's appropriate for its users. So it, it, it actually becomes a very simple Process whereby you're saying, I'm a marketer, I have a solution to a problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That person somewhere on the internet who is Google's user is looking for the solution that I provide. The intermediary is Google. All I need to do is take my solution that I've presented beautifully to the user who might find it. I just need to repackage it so Google fully understands and understands that it's the best, most efficient solution for its user when they're searching. So it's a question of packaging, not a question of content.
0: When it comes to packaging, what kind of things should we be making sure are talking about here?
1: Yeah, and that's where a lot of people get very frightened. They think this is all terribly technical. And you have to be a web developer and you have to have lots of experience with HTML and PHP and all of these kind of geeky languages. And it used to be the case, but it isn't anymore. It used to be, let's say, 80-20 in favor of the geeky developer person. Now it's eighty-twenty in favor of the person creating the content. Google has got so smart that all you need is to make sure that the, let's say, the geeky technical wrapping is understandable by Google. And after that, it's a question of what have you got and how are you presenting it? Now, multiple great examples of that are your copywriting style.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Keep it simple, keep it clear, keep it to the point, and stick on topic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But those are four things I would have said to you as a marketer for your user anyway.
0: Well, that's true. That's exactly true. I mean, I've, I've seen copy when I go to a website and they're talking in the passive voice and they're being really flowery with their language or trying to sound really smart by using big words. That doesn't right. really work, does it?
1: No, and you've just hit on one of the things that I, it's one of my pet hates is the passive voice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not that it's bad, it just, it just isn't appealing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And for the, for the machine, it's probably fine. But even if the machine brings the user to your website and you're using the passive voice and that the machine has understood, that's fine. The user isn't going to be convinced. So you need to find that balance of saying, right, well, I need to make sure that I'm using an active voice and that the machine understands so that it does, does offer me as a solution to its users when they have a problem. And you talked about flowery language. It's so tempting to think, well, I can say it in this incredibly poetic manner, or I can use these massively big, impressive words with five or six syllables, but that isn't going to work for your audience or for Google.
0: Mm-hmm. If, I and, need to, if I need to grab a dictionary, you got a problem.
1: Yes, exactly. hundred percent. And Google actually has this massive dictionary, so it does understand. Uh, Google has the equivalent of Wikipedia, but a billion times bigger in its brain that it can reference, reference this, this, this encyclopedia, this machine-readable encyclopedia called the knowledge graph in, in nanoseconds. So it has absolute knowledge. But if it sees that you're using a vocabulary that your audience are not using, it simply won't match the two because what it's not appropriate because they're not using the same vocabulary. So you need to stick to the vocabulary that your audience is actually using, not because you want to aim at search terms, but because that's what Google is trying to map.
0: Well, not only that, your audience will be using really big words to find the answer. Like, Unless you only want people who are yeah. highly verbose in their language coming to your website, that's the only way that people are going to find you. Is if they're right. if and they're using that for that vocabulary in their searches?
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point. Is that you need to think about the vocabulary we're using to say, well, actually, yeah, maybe I do only need three people to come to my site, and it's the three people who use this very big word that nobody else uses, and that's fine if that's your target audience. If you want to aim wider, then you need to use the wider vocabulary. And the other thing is, you're talking about flowery language, and and, and it's I don't talk about it quite like that, but one thing to understand about google is it doesn't have a sense of irony it doesn't have a sense of humor Mm -hmm. it doesn't have culture um it doesn't get sarcasm and it doesn't get poetry and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to write very boring prose it just means you have to be clear And being clear is good for your audience as much as it's good for Google. So once again, we're coming back to saying, let's make sure that we're clear and helpful and valuable uh, to our audience. And Google is aiming for that exact same thing. Google has an aim, and that is, once again, to get its user to the solution to their problem as efficiently as possible. And from that perspective, all... Uh, Google is trying to do is to understand your page from the perspective of its user. Mm-hmm. It may not be able to do that today, but it will be able to do that tomorrow. So you need to aim where Google is going and not necessarily where it is today.
0: Now, I want to shift a little bit over to Google My Business. How does right. Google My Business help us? Because There are a lot of pieces to that. It almost looks like a social media thing that you can hang out on and post this and post that. But that's not really what it's for, is it?
1: Yeah, I like that kind of analogy with the social media side is that you will fill in your profile like a social media profile. Mm -hmm. And that social media profile that is Google My Business is being posted on Google, mostly when people search your brand name. So you're actually talking to people who already know who you are through your Google My Business. Um, And so you have to be really, really clear once again about what you're communicating to that audience through Google. And we get, I keep coming back to that idea, Google is a lens Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we need to see it that way. It's a lens that is, A, in this particular circumstance, aiming at people who already know us, But it's a lens that has the possibility to to expand out and introduces to a new audience, which is the part we were just talking about. The other thing about Google My Business that I find very interesting is it is a social media idea that, as you say, I fill in the form and I make sure that, you know, it says the right category, the right address, the right telephone number. But then Google supplements that with information it has understood by itself. Mm -hmm. So we once again have this child that is Google. That said, right, well, you've given, this, given me this information and I will show that, that's fine. But I'm going to add some extra information that I learned from my head teacher from the baker down the road. And we're going to add this information into that business profile. So it's not simply a question of you controlling what Google shows your audience when they search your brand name and your Google My Business profile appears. Google will suppl- supplement that information and you need to learn to educate this child to make sure that that supplementary information is correct, helpful, accurate, and valuable for your audience.
0: Yes. And there's a lot of things in that Google My Business where you can put up pictures and mm. add posts and do this and do that, but it's not social media. People have to understand that your social media post isn't right. going to land properly on your Google My Business profile.
1: Right. No, 100%. I, I don't think about that because for me, it's something I wouldn't have done. But you're right. People say, well, I can repurpose this social media content, put it on Google My Business, and it's fine. But the context is totally different. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, one thing that Google My Business does very well is special offers and events, is that you can add them to your, your Google My Business profile, and it will show them. And if you think about special offers and events, who are they aimed at? They're aimed at people who already know who you are. Mm -hmm. because they're searching your brand name on Google. So Google My Business basically guides you in the marketing that you're supposed to be doing on this channel. And if you let it guide you down that path, generally speaking, you will be doing okay. And if you overthink it, you're probably going to get it wrong.
0: Oh, ain't that the truth? (laughs) Overthinking is a bad thing, people. Sometimes that first impression that you have, that first instinct, that first thought is the right one, but yet we doubt ourselves and we think, oh, I'm not sure I'm going the right way. And I think a lot of com- people right now listening to you are thinking, hmm, I've been doing A, maybe I've been doing it wrong.
1: Hmm. Right. And and, and if, if you look at Google and you what it's aiming to do, once again, I mean, I keep coming back to it, but I think it bears repetition, is saying it's trying to solve a problem for its user. Mm -hmm. And so Google My Business is simply its way of helping you to explain to Google, package what you have for Google so it better understands, so it can better present it to its users. So you're not fighting Google, you're working with Google to help Google solve the problems of its users.
0: And you're having to train Google as well as you said, because a lot of times people use words wrong this is a big issue to me as a writer. And buzzwords are a big issue, right? Around this whole idea of people starting to use a word that they hear in order to sound like they're in the in-group and they use the word wrong. And then the meaning of the word becomes so convoluted. And so there's like so many meanings to the word, the word has no meaning. So can we educate Google as to what the definition of a word is
1: right the thing about it is you can't go against the common definition Mm
2: -hmm.
1: google goes by what is generally understood so if you want to make this kind of tiny niche by having a slightly different definition of a particular word you're putting yourself at a massive different disadvantage um google's going to go with the definition that is generally accepted to be true And one major thing within Google today is expertise, authority, and trust. People talking about EAT. Basically boils down to credibility. But if you want to be seen by Google as an expert, you have to basically stick with what is generally accepted to be true. So if you want to make a niche, you need to start, I think, with the generally accepted use of the word. And then further down the article, you can twist it around to the way you're trying to look at it and bring people into your approach. Mm-hmm. But going completely against the grain in terms of at least convincing Google to present you it to its audience is always going to be a very big struggle, but probably also with your audience.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there are certain sites that Google considers credible and other sites what? that it considers questionable. So it's going to award your site. Points based on how close you are to the credible and how yep. close you are to the uncredible. Uh, if you're,
1: that, you know, no, that- that, 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 that's a really fair comment, and it's a very good way of putting it. The the question of authoritative, credible, expert, credible is we're really looking at this credibility idea. Is you don't necessarily have to look to the big sites. Google is very much able to push things down into very niche markets. So I often use the example of, I I live in Paris in France.
0: Oh, I'm so jealous. That is like the one thing on my bucket list. The one thing.
1: The the Poodle Parlour of Paris doesn't need an article in the New York Times. It doesn't need to agree with the New York Times. The Poodle Parlour of Paris needs to agree with the Poodle Association of France and the dog hair clipping salon in the street. They actually have their business. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for the geo uh, relevancy, the topical relevancy. And the New York Times might be massively powerful, but it's neither geo nor topically relevant to the Poodle Parlour of Paris. So you can really, really aim for this idea of credibility of a given website within your niche, within your geo region. And you don't have to aim big is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, but you make a good point because there are, you know, we're always talking about keywords, 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 keyword. But you know, I was reading something that the Google, the Google machine, just to sound as untechnical as possible, uh, looks at topics and right. assesses where your site fits based on the topic of your site. So, how can you let Google know which topic you fit into, and how do you fall out of the right topic? Like a lot of times, we have a website. And Google doesn't know where to place it.
1: Right. Well, but the, the idea of topicality is something quite new. Mm-hmm. Because before, as you said, we focused on keywords. We were counting words. Google doesn't do that anymore. It understands the topic. It understands what which topic you're talking about. And are you talking about it in a credible, authoritative manner? And so if you... Um, If you talk about a topic consistently, Google will understand that that is where you're focused and it will be able to match you to your audience. And that's phenomenally important. If you start to try and spread out and try and talk about lots of different things to try and attract a wider audience, you're gonna lose that topical authority as we call it. Mm -hmm. So it's better to stick to your topic and stick to your core topic. And when you're talking about your topic, think about what we call context clouds. And it sounds slightly fluffy because it's a cloud but it just means using the right vocabulary that disambiguates the words you're using. Mm -hmm. And one great example is wave. The word wave, if Google was just word counting, it would see wave and it would say, okay, that's fine. But it doesn't understand the difference when it's word counting between wave as in goodbye, wave on a beach, on the sea, um, uh, sound wave, multiple meanings already. So if you're talking about sound waves, you would want to talk about music, mixing desks, uh, microphone. Those words make up that context cloud. Mm -hmm. It's not synonyms that matter. It's the words that surround. and, And somebody once said, you can judge a word by the company it keeps. So the company you're keeping with the word wave on the beach would be sand. C, umbrella, oh, no, uh, what's it called? Sunshade, excuse me, sun cream. And, and if it was wave goodbye, it would be station, train, mother, mm-hmm. um, arm, goodbye. Yeah. So you need to think about context clouds. You need to stick, think about sticking on topic and making sure that Google understands what your core topic is and that you are expert, authoritative, and trustworthy within that topic. That's when you win the game.
0: Now, when I think about what you've done, because you've gone from this big topic of SEO, which is mm-hmm. massive, and there's lots of pieces to SEO, and you have focused in on one niche piece, Yeah, which, you know, most all of my guests have said niche, 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 have used the word niche more than once.
1: Getting a niche is really, really important. The, the more focused you are, the easier it is for Google to understand, but of course, the smaller your audience is. So you've got to balance that idea of niche with my small audience with making sure Google understands. And and my niche is brand SERPs, what your audience sees when they Google your brand name or your personal name. And it's a very small niche in the sense that nobody talks about it, but it's a very big niche in the sense that everybody needs it. They just don't know it yet. So I'm in this constant fight of kind of educating and pushing the message out. But what's been very interesting is because I invented or coined rather the term, Nobody else talks about it, mm-hmm. so I've absolutely nailed the niche, and I've managed to educate Google what a brand SERP is and why it might be useful. Even what I'm seeing.
0: Name. So even though it's Google's tool, yeah. Google's uh, feature, you've named it and educated exactly. Google about how to make it, how to get the best out of it.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Philosophically, Google knew that this thing existed; it just didn't have a name for it. Now it has a name for it and I gave it the name. And and it does mean that what I've seen with Google, and it's been very, very interesting, is I've educated it as to what I'm talking about. And I can see it appearing in searches where it shouldn't necessarily appear, because Google sees it as being potentially helpful and interesting to that search audience. And so what Google's doing is becoming increasingly smart about saying, this person is searching for this or a solution to this problem, here are some other problems they might have that I can also immediately suggest to them. Mm -hmm. And Google becomes this kind of guiding engine. I mean, Google talk about it themselves as the Star Trek machine.
2: Oh, the Star Trek machine.
1: Yeah, uh, if you remember in Star Trek, um, the the machine talks to, let's say, Captain Kirk. Mm -hmm. And the machine will say to Captain Kirk, don't forget to take your stun, stun gun because this planet is dangerous. So Captain Kirk isn't searching or asking for anything he doesn't have a problem the machine is pointing out to him the problem he's going to have Mm -hmm. and is providing the solution before captain kirk even realizes he has a problem that's where google's trying to go and so what it now does with the search engine results is it says you're searching for a after a you're probably going to be looking for b c d e Mm -hmm. and we're going to bring you down that path and so our trick from our perspective is that although i don't appear for a search on whatever the problem a is I can potentially get Google to present me as a solution to problem B on the search results page for the initial problem A. Does that make sense or is that a bit confused?
0: No, because when you were talking about that, I'm thinking of Alexa. Brilliant. (laughs) I was like, the other day, I noticed that my Alexa had this green ring. And so I said, Alexa, what does the green light mean? Right. Oh, you have a notification on my... Say yes if you want to hear them. Yes, I'll listen to it. Last month, you bought this. How... How many stars would you give it or I would never take the time to go and rate something because I'm so busy. The fact that I do a magazine in four days, that is not just the only thing that I do in four days. (laughs) I have a lot of work as a, as an only person working on these projects. I don't have a team. So I don't have time to go in and give a review on Google, Amazon about a product Mm. that I bought last month. Amazon just solved that problem for me. And it was a problem I didn't even know I had.
1: You're Captain Kirk all of a sudden.
0: Exactly.
1: But that that is kind of where all of these kind of machines, Microsoft, um, Amazon, Apple, and Google, they're all going that same way, is they're saying, we want to provide the service that you need, but we also want to present the service you didn't yet know you needed. But you're going to need in five minutes time or 10 minutes time or two days time and it it is that real kind of personal assistant idea
0: is that machine learning or that deep learning or the ai Mm -hmm. component that a lot of people are talking about right now as to where technology is going and a lot of people are excited about it but a lot of people are also very scared of
1: it yeah 100%. 100%. Now, I get that uh, 100%, the, the idea that the machine is taking over. And, and it is slightly concerning from the, the perspective, if you don't understand how it actually works. Mm-hmm. The engineers are not just giving control to the machine. Once again, we have a child, the machine is being told, this is the result we're looking for. Here are the ingredients, you need to figure out how to get from these mixed up ingredients to the result we're looking for as efficient as you possibly can in every circumstance.
0: Predict what's going to happen next. And that's yeah. the case that a lot of, you know, as any executive of any corporation will tell you, sitting there trying to predict what's going to happen in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, year, five years, 10 years, isn't easy because you're dealing with consumers. You're dealing with people. They Although there are certain things that we can predict, most of the time they will throw a wrench in and boom, mm-hmm. it's nothing like we expected because sure. we're I mean, doing people. People are and people. And the machine
1: will be, will be caught out just as much as everybody else or in, in the sense of something unexpected. But um, what you have to remember with machine learning is the aim of machine learning is to do a, a given task better, more efficiently than a human being would do it. And Google and all these other big tech companies are using machine learning and not artificial intelligence.
0: What's the difference artificial, we, what's the Well, difference?
1: artificial intelligence is the idea that the, the, the machine can think in the place of a human being, whereas machine learning is saying we can do the task with the machine more efficiently and better than a human being would do it. The, the, the concept here is to say the, the human beings are saying to the machine, this is what we're aiming to achieve. Can you achieve it more efficiently and effectively than we can?
0: Can't so guess.
1: Chances are yes. And for me, that makes it less scary in the sense that the machine isn't taking control. The machine is simply doing the job better than we would have done it. As human beings, we can't retain all the information and we can't do it in real time. And the machine can. So Mm -hmm. the machine is going to do a better job than us. And the fact that it does a better job than us is actually serving us very well. If you look at Google Maps, Google Maps is incredibly powerful. It can get you from A to B and it can tell you if the shop is shut and it can tell you what the best route is to get there, um, something that a human being could not do because it could not manage, or the human being could not manage the amount of data the machine can, can manage. The machine, and this is a little bit scary, is if you've got your Android phone in your pocket, the reason that Google My Business can tell you the, the shop is probably quite full at this time is because it's tracking the Android phone and it knows that there are more Android phones in that shop at that time than there are in another time in the day.
0: And if they know that a percentage of the population owns Android phones compared to iPhones, they can then say, OK, well, there's probably this many people there with an iPhone. And- yeah.
1: And if if you want to get even more scary, you were talking about reviews. Reviews are phenomenally important. Mm, they reviews, are. It, it goes way beyond just people saying how great you are, because Google uses reviews to understand what it is you offer better, both from a qualitative perspective but also actually the details because and I'll give you a good example when I was looking for a coffee shop in Melbourne Australia mm-hmm. I typed into Google coffee shop with good wi-fi the coffee shop in there Google My Business did not mention wi-fi but the reviews of the coffee shop mentioned great wi-fi so it brought up these reviews and that's why that particular coffee shop appeared so Google is learning the details of what you offer in, as, a, as a local business in this case through the reviews of your users, which is why you should never, ever ask for a review saying, did you enjoy your meal?
0: Well, you want to do, but when you are asking for a review as a human and as a business, when you send out a review request by emails, SMS, Hmm. whichever way you're doing it, give them three questions. What problem were you having before you made a Google search? How did Google? Solve your problem, and what was the result? Now right. it becomes a story about your brand and your and your business, which then becomes more valuable, and you have a better understanding about why people shoot, choose you, why people, what you did to help people, and the results. So when you go to into sell something, guess what? You have stories that you can utilize, and those stories are backed up by the fact that they're actually reviews on a preferably third-party site like Google or one of the many other third-party sites out there and not your website
1: that's a really good point both from the perspective of saying third parties websites are are very very powerful because obviously uh, you don't have control so Google trusts it more your users will probably trust it more the idea of I just say open-ended questions but you're saying yeah ask them three specific questions that tell the story that's absolutely brilliant wonderful delightful. From that perspective, your users are there t- then telling their story with you, and they're going to give details that you would not necessarily have given on your website, which mm-hmm. gives Google even more understandings. And then we take it, the, that's kind of the scary side of it, is mm-hmm. with the, the phone once again, Not only does it know if the place is busy, but it knows if you keep going back to the same place again and again and again, which is an an implicit review. If I live next door to a coffee shop and I go in once and I never go back, that's an implicit one star review.
0: Mm -hmm. Even though you didn't review them.
1: Yeah, exactly. So these Android phones, which I'm waving around for people who can't see it, are a very, very powerful way for Google to understand user behavior. And client behavior. And they then use that masses and masses of data to understand how they can once again serve their users better in any given individual situation. Come back to this idea of if you want Google to offer you a solution, you need to educate it that you have that solution and that you are the best solution from the multiple choices it has to offer its users.
0: And I can assume 60% or more of my listeners just cringed knowing that Google knows where the, it, well, if they have an Android phone, knows an Apple, if you have an Apple phone, same difference. <laughs> Come on, people. It's the same thing. Know what, where you are and what you're doing.
1: Yep. 100%. It's, 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 it's astonishing how much they know. And the thing with Google is, in particular, is you've also got the Chrome browser. Mm-hmm. you've also got Google Analytics, which is on pretty much every site in the world. Mm-hmm. You imagine the amount of data. They've got Google Ads. They've got the, the display oh, network. Google
0: has more power than any other corporation in the world.
1: But do you want to know what they di- what? one of their disadvantages is Amazon has the moment of sale. True. And so Google has a disadvantage there is they have all the information and they can get you to the point where you're about to buy but they don't have the point of sale. Whereas Amazon don't have all that information, can't get you onto the site, but they've got the point of sale. And they're both trying to solve the problem that the other one already has solved. And heaven knows where that's going to go.
0: Yeah, who has more money to buy the other one out? You know, when I think about it though, what is more powerful, knowledge or sales?
1: Ooh, now there we're getting very philosophical. I would love to say knowledge is more powerful because that appeals to the philosopher in me. But at the end of the day, you know, I mean, Jeff Bezos and Amazon are massively, massively rich. But then so Google, Google are all about knowledge and Amazon are all about sales. So open debate. And I don't have the answer.
0: Well, it is a hard answer because data is the new oil, as we all know. And Mm -hmm. we are putting a lot of our data into the hands of corporations and not, not governments, which... Either way, if it's a government or a business, it's the same deal, folks. But the thing is, knowing what you're going to do, knowing what you want to buy, knowing what the next step is, is definitely more powerful than being at the bottom of the funnel where the purchase is made. Because Google gets to decide who you're going to purchase it from, unless you write the word Amazon. Amazon.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a really kind of good point about the, the Google's understanding of the world. I mean, we're looking at this child who wants to understand the world and who has a limitless memory that is perfect. Mm-hmm. And what it's now doing is building increasingly what we call on SERP experience on the search engine results page, where you can research a product on the Google search engine results page from pricing to reviews to videos and then where do you want to go and buy it
0: yeah because when you google it on google google gives you all the options
1: and the the point about where you're going to buy it is you would think it would always be advertisements but it isn't because google cannot afford to just have paid results it has to mix them up with organic uh, free results
0: their credibility goes down the toilet and they're all about credibility their whole like if you give one word to any company about what their mission is or what their brand is, sorry, what their brand is, what does their brand mean? Credibility would be Google's in my opinion.
1: Right. Yeah. And you're hundred percent right. And, and the idea that when we search, I mean, I come back to brand SERPs because it's my thing mm-hmm. is that what Google shows your audience when they Google your brand name, your Google business card is their recommendation or not, if it's a bad result And we use Google because we trust Google. We believe that Google provides good results, even if we complain about it a great deal. And Google's stamp of approval with that Google business card is so phenomenally important to you because the people searching your brand name are bottom or post funnel. They're the people you've worked so hard to convince and they're on the cusp of converting or they're already a client and you want to keep them.
0: And that is why that is so important. And I was selling advertising. It was during the time when print and online were like online was beginning to take print over, but mm. people were still, oh, it's all about print. I don't want to spend any money on online. And it was really cheap to get online advertising at the time. Well, I would have a conversation with them about keywords, like when they search realtor. And I look at them and I say, well, by the time they've gotten to Google and they're searching for a realtor in such and such a place. You lost because what you want to do is have them sit down and search your name, realtor yeah. in such and such a place. And the only way that happens is if they see you in print on the buses on the or billboards on the bus benches, wherever it is, and or they meet you and they know you because you've been out there volunteering mm. and being part of the schools and the community and, and stuff like that offline activity drives the online activity and the online activity gives you offline results they work together but everybody is so focused on we got to be digital or we got to be
1: analog yeah no it, 100%
0: it's not yeah it and
1: businesses kind of miss that point but people like me who are online all the time forget that the online is just a representation of the real world mm-hmm. and Because the thing about the offline is, as you say, you're working so hard, you need to bring that online. There are two things. One of which is you need to transpose the person who you've been talking to in the real world online, bring them into your website, potentially convert, and as you say, give value offline. But also, if you're engaging with your audience offline, Google doesn't see it. And it's to your advantage to then take that information and write it online. Put it on a place on your website so you can actually, once again, inform Google. And a good example is conferences. I have a client who do a lot of events and conferences. And they said, oh, I met this person from, uh, you know, Orange, the big company, uh, the big telecom company in France and in the UK. Uh, and they were terribly pleased with themselves. And they'd spent the afternoon with this person. And you go, that's brilliant. Why don't you write a blog article about it? hmm And it simply didn't occur to them that there is value to be had there because that offline meeting is simply not visible to Google. But writing about it immediately tells Google that this person was talking to the boss of Orange, major company.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And obviously, if Orange then reciprocate and confirm it, you've got that two-way confirmation. That's now a fact. And Google is incredibly impressed by your credibility. So bring the offline online.
0: Yes, Yes. And I was just at AdWorlds, uh, which was a virtual conference with, you know, two days of all these experts going on and talking about advertising and marketing in the digital realm. I mean, the big thing was the metaverse and TikTok. I mean, those were the right. things they were really talking about. Now, one of the things that they kept on talking about, though, was the dark marketing, dark advertising, the right. dark consumer the dark part of the consumer journey. It took me a while to understand, okay, well, finally somebody put up a a slide with a picture and I was like, oh, that's, uh, yeah. So dark just meant that Google, Facebook, Amazon, all of these people that are watching us digitally cannot see it. This is the stuff that you do offline. This is the stuff that happens between you and customers any networking that you do, any community service that you do, all, a referral that you get, all of that stuff fits in this world what? of dark marketing.
1: Wow. And- so, sorry, sorry, you just put a name on something I've been trying to describe. I mean, I dark marketing sounds like Voldemort from Harry Potter or something like that.
0: Well, that's just it. So this digital world of advertising was basically saying that anything that wasn't digital right. isn't good because you have light, the opposite of dark is light, right? And the dark web is the evil web. It's the part of the website that all that bad stuff happens in. I want to push back on that and say, well, I think that's the wrong words to be using, even though that's the words that they are using. It just means that it's unseen, the unmeasurable. Uh, It's that piece. Hidden.
1: I mean, from from a a kind of online perspective, it's, it's hidden from the online world. So right. it's not dark and unseen. It is seen by some people. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually wrote unseen down and you said that. And then I...
0: But I do understand why our digital advertising group of people would call it the dark because they don't get paid for that. They don't right. see it. They can't measure it. They can't analyze it. They can't. But yet the photo that the person used was an iceberg and the dark part was everything under the water. And as we know, 90% of the iceberg is underwater right which i found was very interesting as well in that all of the things that he was listing out we do do a lot of things that are offline to differentiate ourselves from our customers and differentiate our our story Mm. uh, make it more clear provide more feeling more emotion you know when our customer if we sell a product let's say you're an e-commerce store google sends you to the store you buy the product you close the Mm. the website The feeling, the connection with that brand happens when it shows up on your doorstep. Right. Not when you hit buy, but when you actually see it, feel it, put it on. That's when the connection between your brand and the customer happens. It happens in the real world, not in the virtual world. Opportunity lives in the real world. It's when we connect and talk that we go, oh, there's an opportunity there. Oh, I want to hire you. Those kind of things happen when there is real connection. There's very few people. In fact, I can probably count them on one hand as to the type of person that I would think, yes, if they said buy this, I would go buy that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand this whole, you know, oh, Kim Kardashian wore it. So I want to buy it. I want to wear it too. Is that really opportunity? No, that's opportunity for Kim Kardashian, not opportunity for the customer, not opportunity for the follower. If the follower Mm -hmm. wants opportunity, they have to actually meet the person in the real world and connect with them
1: one-on-one. The real world is something that as digital marketers, myself included, we tend to forget. And I did love your Alexa example from earlier on, because that's the perfect kind of loop round is I went online, I bought from Amazon, it got delivered to my door. That was the moment I connected with whatever it was I bought. And therefore the person or the, the company that delivered it to me. And then Amazon was able through Alexa to then reconnect me online, which is the part you were saying you never really do full circle and that's the trick
0: and then it also allows amazon to know i don't like that i didn't like that product
1: Yeah. and uh, from a from a small business perspective the equivalent would be um selling something to somebody and giving them uh instructions as to or an encouragement as to giving it as a review online
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and i think a lot of local businesses in particular fail to do that
0: it's not that they fail to do it they try it's right. that it's not easy enough. We haven't taken the pain out of writing a review. Right. We've tried to incentivize it. We've tried to reward it, but it's, re- it's removing that pain from the process. Now, some people will write the review and say, hey, what do you think? If you like that, please post it. And some people will do that, but that's only taking away some of the pain. Alexa took away all of my pain. She vocally asked me and at the time I gave her the answer. Hence, I have they have this two-star, but they didn't get the full story. They only got stars, yeah. right? There still hasn't removed the pain of having someone who is happy
1: with your service. Yeah.
0: The pain of it's spending time and effort to write you a good review. Right. We still haven't reduced that pain enough. That it's just, yeah, I'll go do that. I'll go do that. Unless they like writing reviews. Unless they're the type of people that, oh, I enjoy this. I enjoy giving kudos. I enjoy um, yeah. doing this other stuff. And there are people that, that do. But most people in this world will not exchange their time and effort to write a review for a company or product, even if they're happy. Because it's too right. much pain.
1: At least from a Google perspective, but also from a convincing your, your, your potential customers perspective reviews are phenomenally important and the effort that we need to put in as businesses I think is um, however much effort it is it's necessary and it's something we need to invest time effort and resources into
0: you know I mean yeah some people do write it and say hey if you like it please post it but they're so inauthentic they're not real mm. I'm sorry but you, when you write it you're writing it in your voice so you do that enough times all your reviews start to sound the same. And they all start to be sound inauthentic, which means you start losing credibility for all your reviews, even the ones that you didn't write.
1: Right. Well, actually, there's a really interesting point about that. If we come all the way back to when you were talking about copywriting
0: mm-hmm.
1: is Google can recognize style and it will recognize if, if I write, if, if it's seen 100 articles that I've written, if I get a, an article ghostwritten and put my name on it, Google will be able to figure out that I didn't write it the more we move forwards, the more that, for example, if whatever it is, I mean, whether it's uh, writing an article or writing profile pages or writing reviews, is that we have an innate style that Google at scale will be able to recognize. Um, So, and if we come back to the frightening aspect of that is increasingly with the machine learning, the machine is going to learn this Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: we're going to be less able to get away with cheating.
0: You can bring up another really good point. I know that we're past our time but uh you bring up such a great point there because (laughs) don't say sorry it's a great point from someone who does write blogs for other people and ghost writes and books and things like that there has to be effort put in by the person that I'm writing for. Yes. They can't just say okay go write this go write that go write this because guess what it is going to sound like me on Mm -hmm. 50 different sites. I like to talk to the person that I'm writing a blog post for. I ask them questions. I record their voice. I take those words and Mm. reformat them for the written word. So it's still their voice and it's still how they would say it. Right. But there still is a bit of me in there, but not... As much as if i wrote the article on, on my
1: own yeah and uh, you're 100 right it, 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 you can't just hand hand over the responsibility for writing to somebody else and expect either your audience for that matter or google to believe that it's you it has to be authentic it has to have your voice you have to get involved and you have to invest the time and effort to make sure it does actually represent what you would and what you want to say
0: which is why i get so frustrated you know, like when you are online and you're reading something and you, and you think that you know them and then you meet them and they're nothing like what they wrote about, the what you saw right. online. It's a bait and switch, right? And then your credibility mm. is thrown out the window because you realize that the person that you were connecting with isn't the person that, whose name
1: it is. 100%. So that's and, and from a Google perspective, bait and switch simply will not work over time. You can't bait and switch the machine. It doesn't work in the real world either.
0: It doesn't work in the real world either, right? When because it throws all your credibility out the window. And one thing about social media is that most all social media out there that is not personal but business oriented Mm. is written by social media marketing people. Right. And a lot of people with a personal brand are using social media marketing people to create that personal brand. Right. Which is actually, now, for the most part, it's fluff because most social marketing people don't really know the person well enough or don't know the topic well enough or they're not experts in what they're trying to to create for this person, especially if they have more than one, one client. The personal brand can be skewed because it's, Either it's really shallow fluff yep. or it's completely off the mark because it's actually someone else with a person's name on it. It's just inauthentic.
1: Right, and, and that actually kind of probably circles round to pretty much the very beginning, which is that has just struck me is the reason that I'm pitching to people saying your brand set, what your audience sees when they Google your brand name, doesn't represent your brand message that you have crafted so carefully within your, your organization. And what you have just done is put your finger on why is because they've let go of that consistency. They allow other people to write for them, the marketing people. And so what then appears on the Brand SERP is not their own brand message. It's the brand message reiterated and adapted by the marketing people that they've employed who don't really know what they're talking about. Come back to say to my clients all the time, that's reflected in your brand SERP. Google's brand SERP is a reflection of how it perceives the world perceives you. So if it's full of all this fluff that you've just mentioned, you're creating too much fluff, Google hasn't understood, and it's reflecting back at you, Mm -hmm. the, let's say, rubbish that you're pushing out there. Google's constantly looking over your shoulder. It has a perfect memory. And it's looking for that credibility, that expertise, that authority, and that trustworthiness.
2: Mm-hmm. You have
1: to be expert. You have to be authoritative. Stick on topic. And you need to make sure that Google understands that you're trustworthy, that you do deliver when it sends its users to you for a solution for their problem that they have asked Google to help them to solve. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I just want to thank you, Jason, so much. And I wanted to ask you one quick question, or actually two quick questions, because one, I see that you have a book behind your shoulder there. Can you tell me what it is? yeah,
1: I forgot about that. I wrote a book, and it's The Fundamentals of Brand Serps for Business. And it's basically, how do you make sure that what your audience sees when they Google your brand name is accurate, positive, and convincing? And the answer is, it's not geeky, it's not techie, it's marketing and common good sense. And it will really help your digital marketing strategy. Anybody can read it. Anybody can understand it. And anybody can get value from it. Because it's marketing and common good sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Find you if they want more information about Brand SERPs and how they can ensure that they show up on Google searches.
1: Right. Well, uh, we've got the book. Uh, we, I've also got the CaliCube Academy where we've got courses uh, where we teach people the more the slightly more technical stuff. It, it digs, takes the book and digs deeper. Google my, my name, Jason Barnard. One of the nice things about the brand, sir, is that it gives you the choice of how you want to engage with me. You'll have my site at the top if you want to learn more about me personally. You've got the knowledge panel on the right-hand side, which will give you the facts about me. You have Twitter if you want to come on Twitter. That's a great place to engage with me. LinkedIn, my company website if you want to do business with me. Uh, The video boxes if you want to watch the videos of the presentations I've done. And as you can see, I've just described the results of what Google presents my audience when they search my name. And it's simply a list of the ways they can engage with me and a summary of who I am what I do and who my audience is.
0: That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And it does take time to build all that. My name dominates five or six pages right. of Google because I have so much online. It's, yep. It is important to have all of those pieces, but it is also important to sit down and map out your digital footprint so that right. you know how it all works together. And you can let Google know how it all works together. Make sure that you're linking properly. Otherwise, Google goes, well, we got this thing over here. and We got this thing over there. And I don't know.
1: Exactly. hundred percent. You've got to understand your own digital footprint. And you need to have a website, your own website. That's the hub. That joins all the ducks, dots. That's the hub. And as you just said, yeah, it's the hub. And this is where you point Google to the places where it should be looking to find information about you that's relevant, helpful, and valuable to your audience?
0: Yeah, it's kind of, it's like a a broken umbrella. You got your hub, which is your website right in the middle (laughs) and all the links going out to all the different places. And sometimes those links come together and you've got the nice fabric going from one little uh, spoke to the next spoke. Sometimes it doesn't. That's why we don't really have the wheel going around and you got this, you're missing a little bit of fabric there. But at least it is linked to the hub, even if it isn't linked to the thing next, to everything else. Brilliant. You need to just make sure it's linked to the hub. And yes, it'd be nice if everything linked and you had this great wheel, bicycle wheel happening.
1: Absolutely brilliant. I love the umbrella. I'm going with that. I'll be, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be quoting you.
0: Yay! <laughs>
1: <laughs> brilliant, thank you so much. That was absolutely delightful. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Listener, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and learned a ton about brand SERPs and how you can get more out of Google than you are today. I encourage you to Google your brand name, Google your personal name, and then drop into marketappeal.com, go to the community and let me know in the brand appeal community what you found when you Googled your brand name and your personal name and how complete your brand SERP is. Until next time, peel out.